is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert. Brrr, it's cold outside. Oh, camp. Hey, bro. <laughs> What's What's it up? is cold. I'm using the space heater in my basement office for the first time in months. Yeah. Well, it's cold because it's February, and that also means that right now is the February mailbag. So Motley Fool analyst Emily Flippin will help answer your questions about rebalancing your winning stocks, how to calculate your savings rate, and investing your emergency fund. All that and much, much more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. Emily, thanks so much for coming back to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. And I'll tell you, bro, you need to upgrade from your space heater to a heated blanket. I I recently made that upgrade myself. And not only do I love it, but my cat loves it as well. Ooh, also get a cat. There you go. Uh, Emily, I think the last time you were on, it was for our uh, industry focus series and you helped walk us through consumer goods and what to expect in the year and beyond. So it's great to have you back here to also share your other investing knowledge outside of consumer goods. I had almost completely forgotten about that. Yeah, it's great to be back. I, that was one of the best days of 2020 for me was when you came on the show. I can't believe you forgot. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. All right. Well, should we get into it? Let's do yes. that. Yes. The answer is yes. All right. Our first question comes from David. I've recently started thinking about retirement earlier than planned in two plus years when I turned 55. My wife and I could collect about $30,000 in pension income from our employer at that point. Plus, we'd continue to work self-employed, clearing $20,000. What I'm not sure about is how and when to fill the, quote, bucket for cash to spend once retired if the market is down. If we want to raise our cash position from $20,000 to $60,000 or more, do we stop putting money into Roths, stop paying any extra on our mortgage, stop equity investing in our brokerage account over the next two years? Selling stocks now to raise cash will be taxed like income, so it seems like that should be avoided. Well, uh, David, I'll start by defining what you're calling a bucket, but we call an income cushion. And that is three to five years of portfolio provided income in retirement that is protected from the stock market, just stuck in boring old cash and bonds. And you can start building that up as you get closer to retirement. You build that income cushion. Then once you're in retirement, you spend over the course of one year, you spend one year's worth of that cushion. And at the end of that year, you replenish the cushion unless the market is down. And then you try to live off that cash and not replenish it until the market goes back up and then you fill the bucket again. Um, So that's sort of the foundation of asset allocation for retirees as far as I'm concerned. But then there's the question of just how much someone should have in stocks a decade or so before retirement in general, just as an asset allocation question. Um, Just for an article that I published today in my Rural Retirement Service, I actually looked at the asset allocations of select target date funds um, from 2030 funds and 2025 funds. So people who are within five to 10 years of retirement um, from the biggest families, American, BlackRock, Fidelity, Tura Price, and Vanguard. And this is what I found. So on average, the 2030 funds have 67% in stocks. So basically two thirds and then another third in cash and bonds. 2025 funds, so someone just a few years from retirement has 58% in stocks, 41% in bonds. And then by retirement mix is about 50 or 50-50. I should say that target date funds are geared to moderate to conservative investors. So these allocations uh, allocations are much less risky than probably the typical Motley Fool member or listener would likely prefer, but it sort of gives you a general starting point. Um, But whatever your allocation you decide is right 
for you, you should gradually begin building toward that allocation, perhaps within a decade of retirement and certainly within five years of your target date. How do you do it? Well, you mentioned a few of them. Um, one would be to um, perhaps you could still contribute to your retirement accounts, but instead of investing those contributions in stocks, just put all future contributions those last few years before retirement into cash or bonds. You could also stop reinvesting dividends from stocks instead of let them accumulate in cash or use them to buy bonds. Um, you could also do something called a sell-off method. And I got that term. It was basically inspired by Warren Buffett's 2012 annual letter in which he explained why Berkshire Hathaway doesn't pay dividends. He recommended a sell-off method and that you gradually sell some stocks. I think it's a good idea to do it quarterly as you approach retirement. So every quarter, you sell a certain percentage of your stocks. Now, that percentage will depend on how far you are from retirement and, and what allocation you want by the time you retire. But let's just say 10 years before retirement, you decide every quarter to sell off one half percent of your stocks. So you're selling about 2% every year. By the time you reach retirement, you've moved about 20% of that money out of stocks and into cash or bonds. A um, couple other things just that you pointed out in your question, you asked about, um, should you stop paying extra on your mortgage? And that's really up to you. I love the idea of being mortgage-free in retirement, but if it was, as we've talked about on previous shows, uh, with interest rates so low, it's less compelling to try to pay down your mortgage sooner. Uh, and the other only thing I would, would add is that, as always, I recommend anyone who's within a few years of retirement or right before retirement, see a fee-only financial planner to make sure that you really are prepared to retire. But just getting from 20,000 cash that you have now to 60,000 as your target, I think you can do that just by taking a few gradual steps and moving that way over the next couple of years. Our next question comes from Adam. Thanks for all your hard work. Stock Advisor and your website have made such a positive impact on myself and my family. Oh, that's nice to hear. My question is about when to rebalance my winners. I've been fortunate to have a couple of big winners over the last 12 months. And while all of my positions started at 5% or less of my portfolio, a few have grown to 12, 17, and in one case, 28%. In all three cases, I still feel strongly about the stock. My investment thesis confidence has only grown and I would buy all three stocks today. However, I have read it's never a good idea to have that much of your total holdings in one stock. I've taken my cost basis out of two of the stocks, but don't really want to sell more. But also fear I'm just being greedy. How do you handle this situation? Well, first of all, I, I feel like this person should just give themselves a little pat on the back to start because it's such a good problem to have when you start off uh, with companies that you really love and that you believe in at a relatively small portions of your portfolio, and they grow to become something like 20 25 or 30 percent. Um, that means that you did the hardest thing that it is for investors to do, which is not only buy good companies, but hold them for long periods of time. Uh, because the biggest mistake we see when people manage their own investments is panicking and selling. Uh, so first of all, congrats. As far as what position is too large of a position, uh, that ultimately comes down to a personal decision. And it actually comes down to where your other investments are as well. So a lot of people, when talking about their portfolio concentration, are maybe just looking at their taxable brokerage accounts, not necessarily looking at their retirement savings that they may have in other accounts. Uh, so first of all, ask yourself, when you look at this position, is it a portion of 
all of the assets that you have invested? Or is it a portion of only maybe one account's assets that are invested? And that can also help frame up uh, how risky your position is in general. But when providing advice, I, I tend to look at just my my accounts where I'm buying individual companies. And what makes me happy, what allows me to sleep at night may not be the same thing that allows somebody else. I know David Gardner, for instance, has come on to a mini a Motley Fool podcast and said he's comfortable having a 60, 70% position, uh, which the vast majority of investors probably aren't. But it comes down to you, your age, your investing horizon, and your risk tolerance. Generally speaking, if you're not worried about these companies, if worrying about their performance doesn't keep you up at night, and if you're able to hold the mentality of, regardless of what happens in the future, I'm not going to panic sell, I'm going to hold this good company for the long term, I generally think that assuming your investment horizon is long enough, you don't need to really worry about a position getting too large until it starts getting up to that you know, maybe 40 or 50% mark. But each person is their own. And if you find yourself losing sleep worrying, uh, there's no problems in selling down in a company that you like because it allows you to sleep better at night. I'll just add that it's always good to think about what are the consequences if, say, that stock that's 28% of your portfolio gets cut in half. Now, if you're young and far from retirement and aggressive and you believe in the company, it's probably no impact at all. It's not going to change your life. If you're within two years of retirement, it's possibly a different story. So just think about the consequences of what would happen if your concentrated holdings don't do quite as well. Our next question comes from Bryce. For the past four years, my wife and I have maxed out our Roth IRA contributions at the beginning of the year. However, unexpectedly, our combined incomes were over the $206,000 limit last year. What do we do? Also, going forward, we expect to earn right around $205,000 a year, plus or minus $15,000, based on overtime opportunities. Does that mean we need to wait until the end of the year to make our contributions to know if we are below the income limit? I hate to miss out on 12 months of growth. Well, very good question, Bryce. First of all, the important thing to remember with these income limits on Roth eligibility is they're not based on gross income. So your salary plus interest, capital gains, dividends, rental income, whatever. It's based on your modified adjusted gross income. Starts with your adjusted gross income and you'll find that on your tax return. And then the modified part is that you add in a few deductions, such as like student loan interest and half of self-employment taxes. Most people doesn't apply to. Um, So it's important to understand that your adjusted gross income, depending on your situation, could be considerably lower than your gross income. So for example, some things that would reduce your adjusted gross income and thus your modified adjusted gross income are contributions to a traditional 401k, not Roth, but traditional 401k, contributions to a health savings account, contributions to flexible spending plans. So if you and your wife each contribute $10,000 to a traditional 401k and then $2,000 to flexible spending accounts, that drops you to below the limit and you're eligible to contribute to the Roth. Um, It's also important to know that there's not one single cutoff for the Roth. It is um, gradual. So you mentioned $2,000, $6,000. That's for last year, 2020. And you have up until April 15th of this year to contribute to a Roth for 2020. For a married person, it starts phasing out at 196, then gradually goes, you're totally phased out of a Roth at 206. If you're single, it's 124 to 139. And those numbers uh, are a couple thousand dollars higher for 2021. So 
chances are many, many people who think they aren't eligible for the Roth because they're so close to that limit actually are once you look at your actual modified adjusted gross income. So just do a little research on that to find out what your real modified adjusted gross income is. Now, let's say you do that research and you find out, yes, you're still on the cusp. You can contribute to the Roth. And if it turns out that you made too much money, you can recharacterize the contribution as a traditional, but you should do it as soon as possible. Here's how to do it straight from the IRS website. Quote, you tell the trustee of the financial institution holding your IRA to transfer the amount of the contribution plus earnings to a different type of IRA, either Roth or traditional, in a trustee to trustee transfer. And that's important. Or to a different type of IRA with the same trustee. If this is done by the due date for filing your tax return, including extensions, you can treat the contribution as made to the second IRA for that total year. So just make sure if you do the Roth, find out you had made up too much, recharacterize as soon as possible. Next question comes from Tom. My dad is a retired CFP and deterred me from stock market investing for years with the warning, don't invest any money you aren't willing to lose. My wife and I have an emergency savings account that contains four months worth of spending. We haven't touched the money since the account was established a few years ago. I joined Motley Fool Stock Advisor in August and started a small brokerage account. Since then, that account is up 52%. It pains me to know that I could invest a tiny fraction of what's in our emergency account and make more money in six months than we ever will in savings account interest. Would it make sense to take 10 to 20% of the emergency account money and invest it to at least keep up with inflation and our growing family? So my quick answer um, is no. And uh, I, I say that because emergency funds are absolutely critical, but you never know they're critical until you need them the most. So it's really easy when uh, your brokerage account or your taxable accounts, your 401k, whatever it may be, is doing really well in the market to think to yourself, man, I have all this money, this cash sitting on the sidelines with interest rates where they are today. You're not making very much money on those savings accounts. It's really easy to be tempted to say, I'm going to take a even just a small portion of that and invest it to get better returns. But the problem is, is that when the market goes down, uh, you're also more likely to get laid off, or that can be the reverse way around, right? There's a recession, um, something happens to the general economy, typically the stock market will tank, and it's more likely that people get laid off from their jobs, which would mean that that emergency fund that was supposed to be there to support you in case of an emergency like losing your job is suddenly much smaller than it was if you had just left it in cash. And I know it's painful sometimes to see all that money earning essentially nothing, really losing out year over year as inflation grows. But again, it's more of a risk measurement tool. And, and you mentioned there your growing family as well. And I generally think that uh, couples, people with kids should always be really prudent to, to make sure they can protect their current lifestyle if something happens that is an emergency. So my quick answer there is, is no, don't invest your emergency fund, even if it's a small portion. I think it's fascinating that he said his dad is a retired CFP and, and deterred him from investing in the stock market. My my question for the dad would be, how did you retire if you didn't invest in stocks? Have you been just investing in cash and bonds? Or did you have a pension from the company you worked for? Because I think that's very difficult. And I also think it's it's a bit misleading to say, the dad said, don't invest any money you aren't willing to lose. I'm more inclined to say that if it's about an individual stock, because any company can go belly up, or even good companies can lose 90% and rebound. But if you're going to invest in, let's say, 
an S&P 500 index fund, the worst years that goes down 30, 40, 50% and rebounds, if the S&P 500 loses all its value, we're in a lot of trouble. So I would hate for people to, to follow that precept when it comes to their investing decisions. Our next question comes from Richard. I accept that some inflation is inevitable, but why does the Federal Reserve treat inflation as desirable? In the late 1960s, when I started work for slightly less than the $1.65 minimum wage, a decent new car cost $2,000 and middle-class houses could be bought for $12,000 to $20,000. As I understand the consumer price index, it takes about $7.50 now to match the purchasing power of a dollar in 1967. Aside from bracket creep that moves many people into higher marginal income tax brackets, what is the purpose of planned inflation? So, Richard, I have to say that when you talk about inflation, it's uh, an economics discussion. And it's not, uh, I'm getting a little out of my depth with economics, but I'm going to take a stab at your question. And, and I'm going to say, first of all, uh, I'm going to basically try to explain why inflation is desirable by pointing out why deflation, deflation, the opposite, is not desirable. And we saw this in the Great Depression, and it's part of what made it worse. When you have deflation, you have prices going down. When prices are going down, people put off spending money. Because why would you buy something today if you can wait a few weeks and it's cheaper in the future? So what happens is people don't spend and the economy slow down, slows down because the economy is two-thirds driven by consumer spending. Uh, and so it's sort of this uh, unvirtuous cycle, as you were, when it comes to deflation. So that's why, for example, during the Great Recession and during this current recession, although I think we're technically out, we're, we're all, I'm sure we're technically out of it right now, although it hasn't been declared. Um, ben Bernanke and then Jerome Powell, when they happened, they fouled the they looked at the Great Depression and they said, we do not want deflation. So we will do whatever we can to encourage people to spend money. Um, so having a little bit of inflation is a sign that the economy is growing and it is certainly preferable to deflation. Uh, some people also say the government wants inflation because of all the debt that we have. Debt is expressed in nominal terms. And there's one way, one way to pay off your debt is to inflate your income so you make more money and you have more money than to pay off the debt that has not been inflated. Um, that's, uh, I, I, I would say that is not the stated purpose of why the government wants it, but it sort of, it, it could play into it. Um, just a couple other things that you mentioned in your question. You um, said that, uh, mentioned something basically about tax bracket creep. Um, the actual rates for each tax bracket don't change each year for inflation. That can only be changed by Congress. But the amount of money it takes to move into a higher tax bracket is adjusted every year, roughly, for inflation. One item of taxation that doesn't change, however, is how much you have to earn to have your Social Security subject to taxes. Those ranges haven't, have been the same, essentially, since 1983, I think. So every year, more and more Social Security income is taxed. Uh, and then just finally, a, a, a note of technical interest possibly is that you mentioned the CPI, which is the measure of inflation that you most often hear about. But the Fed actually looks at the Personal Consumption Expenditures Index, the PCE, and that tends to trail the CPI by a third of a percent or so. All right. Geeking out with bro on economics. How do you feel flexing those muscles? Well, if you really <laughs> want to read about it, the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis has a great article entitled, I Say CPI, You Say PCE. Highly recommended. 
Our next question comes from Robert. I've been told that since pot is illegal on the U.S. federal front, pot companies can't use U.S.-based banks for their money. Is this true? And if so, where do pot companies keep their money? And should this have any bearing on pot company investment decisions? Pot, pot, pot. I haven't said pot that many times in a sentence since college. I failed uh, at least three separate economics classes throughout my life. So the last question, I was not qualified at all to answer. But this is one that is straight up my alley. Um, So it's actually a really interesting question, Robert. Um, When you look at US-based cannabis companies, they're operating in this kind of two-tiered environment, where on a state level, a lot of them are operating legally, right? So their state governments, their state localities recognize their business. But on a federal level, the federal government says that they're still involved in the trafficking of a Schedule One illegal substance. And it's made banking really strange. So you're about 50% accurate um, in what you've been told, which is that these cannabis companies that operate legally on a state level have a really hard time accessing banking services. The big issue is when it comes to federal banks, banks that are doing business across state lines. These big banks don't want to take any money from cannabis companies because they could be perceived to also be engaging in the the kind of laundering of this federally illegal uh, business. Whereas state banks, so local banks, banks that don't do business outside of the state in which they're incorporated, they're the ones that are most likely to uh, do business and manage these cannabis companies' uh, revenues, right? So the money they bring in, because they don't actually transport that money across state lines. And on their perceptions, it, it's extremely unlikely that the federal government's going to come in um, and come after a state bank that is doing business that's legal in their state. So it's not impossible for cannabis companies to get access to banking services, but it is very hard. And it also is extremely expensive because the banks that are willing to work with cannabis companies know that they are a select few options that these businesses have. Now, it should be a factor when you look at potentially investing in pure play cannabis businesses, because this is a very real and tangible issue that's representative of the regulatory challenges that are going to continue to persist for U.S.-based cannabis companies for the foreseeable future. Uh, While we're seeing some momentum come up on the decriminalization, legalization, even banking reform aspects through Congress, especially heading into 2021 and future years, it will still take many, many years for the government to really figure out what regulations for the cannabis industry looks like. So you should expect these troubles, not just banking, but troubles with every aspect of cannabis businesses to continue to persist. So I like to say, if you're investing in cannabis businesses, do not sell those investments for at least the next five to seven years, because that's how long it's going to take for regulations to truly play out in the space. All I say is that answer was dope. Thank you. This episode of Answers is brought to you by Motley Fool Stock Advisor, the Fool's flagship investment idea service. Led by co-founders Tom and David Gardner, the Stock Advisor team has outperformed the market five to one since the launch of the service in 2002. If you're a regular Answers listener, you've probably heard about Stock Advisor and may have thought to yourself, I should check it out. Well, today is your lucky day because you can give Stock Advisor a try for 50% off the list price by visiting saoffer.fool.com. 
You'll gain an unlimited access to all the past and current recommendations, as well as a virtual library of investment education. Plus, members will receive new stock picks each and every month. Is your interest peaked? Then go on over to saoffer.fool.com. That's the letters S and A, followed by offer.fool.com. Next question comes from Russ. I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about some guidelines for people with a pension who want to make sure they are saving an appropriate additional amount for retirement. My wife and I will receive a pension of 82.5% of our highest annual salary, and I feel relatively confident in the strength of the pension as it has a ratcheting mechanism that auto-kicks in if it were to become underfunded, as written into our state constitution. So how much do people like me save? We're 33 years old and 20 to 25 years away from retirement. Uh, so, Russ, there's no question that if you're covered by a pension, you theoretically don't have to save as much for retirement. It, of course, depends on your situation. So you should run your own numbers and, or hire a pro to do it and all that good stuff. But generally, uh, on the show, I've often recommended that people save 15% of their income for retirement. And that could include a match uh, that an employer puts in the 401k. But if you're covered by a pension, I could see that going down to 10% or even less. Here's the challenge, though. So first of all, um, it sounds like it's a, it's a safe pension, and you're very smart to look at that. And anyone who has going to be covered by a pension should investigate the safety of the pension. Um, that said, you know th- this is, a, according to a state constitution, it'll be well-funded. But constitutions can change. Voters can change their minds about how generous they want to be with state employers or employees. Uh, And it's the same with companies. A a well-funded pension today could be in a different situation 20 years from now. Also, you're young. And for the pension to really pay off, you have to stick with the company for a long time. Uh, That's your current plan. You say that you you indicate that you plan to stay in this job. I'm going to assume you're a, a teacher of some kind or maybe a cop or fire person, something like that. You assume you're going to do that for 20, 25 years, but 10 years from now, you may change your mind. You know, like, you know, I, I actually don't want to do this job anymore. So being a, a generally play it safe type of guy, I would still aim to save at least 10% of your salary. And then if the pension seems to be in trouble at some point in the future, or you leave that job, and you're no longer covered, you certainly should ratchet your savings back up. Next question comes from Asa. I'm a recent member of Rule Breakers and Stock Advisor. I have a portfolio of individual stocks, but most of my investments are in diversified ETF portfolios managed by Wealthfront and Betterment. These portfolios have underperformed the S&P over the past two to four years. Is this cause to consider a different portfolio manager, or is the diversification offered by these ETFs, most money is in VTI, for example, a better long-term diversified investment strategy? Also, my investments seem to trail the S&P if I look at time-weighted returns. However, if I look at money-weighted returns, these portfolios are more competitive. Which calculation method is more appropriate to judge and compare performance relative to other indexes? So this is really a two-part question. To address that first question, which is, well, I have these portfolios that are in, in passive investments that seem to have trailed the S&P 500. Uh, should I change my investment strategy? Uh, well, it's hard to say without knowing all the details of any one person's uh, asset allocations. When you look at any short period of time, in two to four years, 
is a relatively short period of time, you have to ask yourself, okay, how is this investment uh, doing long-term, longer than two to four years, and how is it different than the benchmark that I'm comparing it to? Typically, when it comes to passive investments, you can expect that type of fund to underperform its benchmark by the ratio of its expenses. So each fund will have uh, some ratio of net or gross expenses that's being passed on to you as an investor in the fund. This is true for Wealthfront, Betterment, and VTI. It's true for all of them. And understand that every single year, you can expect to underperform your benchmark by however much you're paying in fees. That's understandable. But also ask yourself, well, you're comparing um, what is a really diversified fund, presumably, against the S&P 500, which is a market cap weighted index of the 500 largest companies in the United States with some other metrics thrown in there. But it's not necessarily a one-to-one comparison. So while the last two to four years may have been great for the S&P 500, maybe the next two to four years are great for the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ. I mean, there's no predicting which benchmark is going to outperform another benchmark over any short time horizon. Generally speaking, the more diversified you are, the better. Um, So I like to recommend that investors don't purely invest in an S&P 500 fund because it is more narrowly defined than something like VTI, which is a total stock market index fund. I like the total stock market index funds better, but that's an individual choice. So do some research into which type of of benchmark you would be preferred to be invested in, and then find the lowest fee way to invest in that benchmark. And then as it comes to that second question, which is looking at time-weighted versus money-weighted rate of returns, this is really actually interesting. So time-weighted rate of returns are are more complicated to calculate than a money-weighted rate of return. And without getting into the technicalities, essentially, the asset management industry uses time-weighted as a, as its industry standard because they don't control the outflow and inflow of money, which can lead to different calculations. Money-weighted rate of return is really good for individual investors because we have control over when we put money in the market and take money out of the market. However, Since most institutional asset managers use a time-weighted rate of return when judging the performance of their investments, if you're comparing your own investment performance against that of an asset manager, you'll want to use time-weighted rate of return so you're comparing them apples to apples. Whereas if you're just looking at your individual portfolio, you want to know how you did last year, not relative to any benchmark, just in absolute terms, money-weighted is probably better. Our next question comes from Bill. Recently, I've become very concerned with the political direction of the country. Even though the market is near an all-time high, I have very little confidence in the American market due to our huge federal debt, deficits, future tax rates, low interest rates, and looming inflation. Presently, I've been moving 50% cash into Fidelity Zero International Index Fund and 50% into Fidelity Select Gold. Do you think this is a wise strategy and do you have any other suggestions? Uh, I would certainly say you are right to be concerned about many of the issues you cited. I don't really frame it so much as political because I think both parties have contributed to the situation that we are in. Um, But there is no question that uh, the government spends more money than it takes in, and we have significantly underfunded liabilities in the future, things like Medicare, Social Security, things like that. Um, So one way to um, hedge against the risk of that. The, the risk there, of course, is that taxes are going to go up in the future. In fact, they are going to go up according to current law in 2025. The way to hedge against that 
is to have more assets in Roth accounts. Contributing to Roths, if you're not eligible for the Roth IRA to your income, if you have a Roth 401k, use that. Anyone can contribute to a Roth 401k regardless of income. You could do Roth conversions just a little bit each year. Of course, it depends on your tax bracket. If you're in a really high tax bracket today, it may not be worth it, but it's something to consider. Um, International investing makes sense as well. I had mentioned previously uh, a little survey I did of target date funds. I would say on average, when you look at the stock allocation of target date funds, about a third of the assets are in international stocks. So that's less than what you're currently suggesting. Um, one problem is that many countries are in just about a shape as US or worse. So if you are investing overseas because you are looking for countries that are in better fiscal shape, you've got to be picky because a lot of other countries are in the same boat as we are. Um, as for gold, um, I own gold now for the first time really ever. I think I bought it maybe a year ago, not quite a year ago, because I think there is a risk of higher than expected inflation. I don't mean super inflation like the 70s and early 80s, but higher than what most people are predicting. I have a very small part in gold. The problem with gold is, and we borrowed this from, like so many things from Warren Buffett, is that we like to invest in companies, companies that produce income, produce earnings, they can innovate, they can increase market share, things like that. Gold is just a hunk of metal, and it's only uh, has a value based on what other folks are deeming it to be. So you have to hope that more people value gold in the future than today. And if you look at the long-term history of gold, it has uh, a history of going up and down, but actually not really increasing for inflation. So while I don't think it's a bad idea to have some gold, putting 50% in gold is, is far too much for my tastes. Our next question comes from Dustin. I hear TMFers, we prefer to be called fools, talk about having 10% in cash or maybe building a little bit more like 15% cash as a portion of their portfolio. I am wondering what the term portfolio entails here. Personal brokerage accounts, taxable IRAs only, or both personal brokerage accounts and 401ks, employer-sponsored accounts too. I'm probably planning on taking the perspective of thinking about my allocation within my personal brokerage accounts and letting my 401k be its own thing, but would be interested to hear what you and the Motley Fool analysts are referring to when they say portfolio? Oh, I, I love this question because I don't think I have an answer. And I, I, I'll give how I think about it. I'm interested how, how you know, bro, for instance, how you think about your portfolios. Uh, but when I talk about having a cash position in my portfolio, I'm only talking about the accounts in which I pick individual stocks. Um, so these are actively managed accounts. I don't consider any of my passively managed accounts, which are uh, largely my retirement funds, which I haven't at all in index funds, which is 100% invested at all times, right? That's a completely passive way for me to invest. So when I talk about uh, having a cash position, I'm talking about the active decision that I'm making. And I only apply that to the accounts in which I am making those active decisions. Uh, but I, I can't make a great argument for why I do that from an asset allocation standpoint, because I mean, all of that money's invested in the market, right? But I think on an individual level, when it comes down to my perception of risk, uh, given how much riskier my my uh, you know, individual stock accounts are, my taxable accounts are versus maybe my 401k, I get a sense of peace from understanding my cash position there. But man, that's a hard question. And I don't have a great answer. <laughs> Bro, what about you? 
Well, I would say I am a big fan, uh, especially for people who have multiple accounts, uh, of determining your overall asset allocation across all your accounts. And you, you can do that if, uh, you know, if your broker, if you have most of your accounts with one broker, they often will provide sort of this 30,000 foot level view of your asset allocation. You can use a tool like Morningstar's Instant X-Ray or Mint or Personal Capital, or a lot of people just use their own spreadsheets. But if you Google asset allocation spreadsheet template, you'll come up with all kinds of things that other people have created as a way to look at their overall asset allocation on their own. Um, but uh, it does sort of depend on what the purpose of that 10% cash is. If that purpose of the 10% cash is so that you have dry powder to use when the market goes down or as to, to purchase stock ideas as they become available, I think it totally makes sense to do what Emily is doing. And then so you, you factor it just in that one brokerage account or your stock buying brokerage account because that's dry powder. If instead you're looking at your cash allocation as a way to limit your overall portfolio risk, especially if you're getting closer to retirement, then I think it makes more sense to look at it as you're at all your portfolios and make sure you have enough on the side to protect your retirement in case the market goes down. Of course, bro has a, has a great answer there. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. Well, I think a lot of our investors and a lot of our members too, they have their accounts that are, I don't want to say play money, but they have their actively managed accounts and that's their Motley Fool money. That's their, I'm going to buy this stock. I'm going to do this with this rec. I'm going to need my dry powder. And then they're like, yeah, yeah. I also have like, I have a, a, I have a wealth manager who deals with all my other money. It's over here kind of thing. I think a lot of our members probably think about it in two separate spaces of their brain as well. I think that makes total sense because uh, you might want to follow different investment strategies. You might like having, like Emily has, a portfolio that's just index funds because you know it's tough to beat the index funds. That said, you also like to have an account where you try to pick stocks. And, and depending on your interest in doing that and your uh, experience of beating the market, that could be a big account or just a small little side account. Uh, and and I do know many Motley Fool members who manage their own money on with one part of the portfolio, but do hire wealth managers for the other part, whether it's a real life person or Wealthfront or Betterment or anything like that. And I think that's fine because you're kind of hedging your investment advisor risk and you being one of your own investment advisors. All right. Our last question comes from Colin. What is included in a savings rate calculation? I consider money I put away in my savings account and retirement accounts. Do I include my payments to my mortgage since it's building equity and a predominantly appreciating asset? All these basic questions that have so complicated answers, huh? It's, it's so true. And I love that he's thinking about savings rates. Um, I love calculating my own personally. Um, one guideline that we have mentioned in the past that I know has resonated with people is the, a guideline, I think, first proposed by Elizabeth Warren back when she was a Harvard professor, and that was 20% to savings, 50% to fixed must-pay expenses like your mortgage, and then 30% towards discretionary expenses. But what I really like is that you should probably calculate a savings rate for each individual goal because no two families should have the same savings rate, right? I mean, someone... A family who's saving for retirement and college should have a higher savings rate than a family who doesn't have kids or they want their kids to be on their own for college and don't have to, they don't want to have to worry about their kids, whatever. Um, so I've mentioned before, I think 15% is a good savings rate for um, retirement, for college, for a second home, uh, building up an emerging emergency fund, whatever goals you have, I would calculate a separate savings rate 
for each of those, and I would factor in only the accounts and assets that will contribute to that goal. So if I figure out a savings rate for college for my kids, I would only factor in, for example, my 529 or Coverdell accounts because those are the assets that are going just to college. Mortgage is tougher because Colin is absolutely right that he's building up equity and it's an appreciating asset. The question is, will you use that asset to accomplish your goal? If you're just if you're paying off your mortgage and you're going to stay in your current house for the rest of your life, you don't plan on downsizing, you don't plan on doing a reverse mortgage or anything like that, I would say not factor it in. In fact, that's what most people would say, don't factor in your mortgage. Now, you will find people who think you should, but man, once you start digging into how factor your mortgage to your savings rate, there's all kinds of discussions about how to do it. For example, you know, every mortgage is only a a portion of principal and interest. So some people will say, well, you should only factor in the principal as part of your savings rate, not the interest, but that changes every month. So you have to figure out each month, how much is going to principal, how much is going to interest. So I would say to keep it simple, probably not. But if you do plan on your home factoring largely into retirement, maybe because you're, you know, you're Built, you, you have a house in New England that's worth $600,000 and right before retirement, you're going to move to Florida where you can buy a house for $300,000 and you're going to realize $300,000 in, in lump sum that you can invest, then I might be more inclined to, to include my mortgage into the savings rate. No simple answer, huh, bro? No. Sorry, Colin. Well, if you're looking for a simple answer, I would say just ignore your mortgage. But if you want a more complicated and possibly more accurate answer, go for it. <laughs> All right. Well, that's the show. Emily, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was such a treat. Um, I, I really enjoy these and I always coming out of it knowing so much more than I came in with it. So um, I brought the pot knowledge and bro brought everything else. <laughs> that sounds like a party to me. <laughs> oh, I don't know that I want to go to that party necessarily. Uh, I, say, I say this as someone who's never smoking pot. Let's just make that clear. But anyways, it's just a fun joke. Emily, what was that great quote that we used to laugh about? Because you did that interview. Like we should tell listeners that you help, you lead one of our uh, services focused on the cannabis industry. So that's why you're an expert here, not because of like your necessary personal interest in it necessarily. I don't know what you do in your own times, your own business. But what was that quote that we used to always laugh about? That it was like. Do you remember there was a quote like in Marketplace or something when you did an interview? And it wasn't like Emily Flippin really oh. likes marijuana, but it was the quote that was almost like Oh my like gosh. That. It was something along those lines. Um, oh, Emily Flippin has a lot of like personal uh, knowledge <laughs> about cannabis. And it <laughs> It was obviously trying to get at the fact that I had been studying the industry for so many years, uh, but it, it definitely read as Emily Flippin has personal. She spends a lot of time on couches in basements. <laughs> a lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we appreciate you coming on the show, and of course, we'd love to have you back sooner rather than later. So, Emily, thanks again. Thanks. All right. Well, like I said, that's the show. Uh, uh, I don't know that we mentioned any specific stocks, but I'll just do the disclaimer anyway. The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks we maybe did or didn't talk about on the show. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you heard here. All right. The show is edited drearily. Man, it is dreary outside there by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. (laughs) 